How's that? Okay. Even better. So we're going to dismiss children for Children's Church. And that's ages 4 through 1st grade. And you can follow Miss Jill Hill and Polly Schwartz out this north door. So um, I'm not going to ask whether you read your email or not. Um, but I, I do want to I I say this just in regard to my sabbatical. Because uh, I know... I know that sometimes uh, pastors have gone on sabbatical and they come back and say, hey, guess what? I found a new job and I'm going someplace else. This is not what's going on. I just, I want, I want you to assure you, I want you to know this. I've been serving here for nine years um, and it's been great. I mean, I, what a blessing to have Emily here and there's just a true sense of family. Uh, but also, this is just an opportunity for me, me to catch my spiritual breath, this Ministry is a joy, but it, it is it does it does take its toll every once in a while. And so I'm, I asked the elder board for this opportunity, and they graciously gave it to me. And I want to encourage you. You're going to have some good men feeding you the word of God this summer, and they're going to do it well. So please be here because God wants to feed you through these men, through Kelly Reynolds next week. Uh, through Alex Fleming, our youth pastor, through Jim Cluth. They're going to do a great job. And, and uh, when we get to the main uh, spot in, uh, in June, they're going to be going through First and Second Thessalonians. So I'll let them unpack that for you. But I, I want you to know that. Um, you will not see me here next week. It's not because I'm flying the coop, but because uh, I have the privilege to go out to Gurney, Illinois, where I served for five years at a church called the Village Church of Gurney, and their senior pastor, who's been there for 35 years, is retiring. And they asked some former staff to come back, and I'm going to go and uh, lead worship there. And so it'll be a great celebration of God's faithfulness to his body there. And the, and the elder board said, look, if you have some vacation time, go ahead and do that. Take that opportunity. So Kelly will be in the pulpit and he'll do a great job. But I, again, I just don't want any of you to be walking away going, oh, what's up with Pastor Nathan? Is he, what's he doing this summer? You know, um, I want you to know that I'm really going to use this time for God to refresh me and to seek his face and really say, Lord, what's next for serving here at, at Berean? So I want you to know that. So you may have heard this story somewhere along the line. Um, during the late 60s and the early 70s, the hippie movement was in full swing. Some of those hippies started trying to figure out, what, what, what about this Jesus guy? What fulfillment can I find in him that I'm trying to find in drugs or the psychedelic lifestyle. And so there was a, a church, traditional church, just like ours in some ways, having a service, you know, and they were singing the last hymn before the pastor was to come on up and preach. And in comes this young man who's dressed completely like different than everyone else. He's walking around in long hair a t-shirt, jeans, barefoot, and he's walking through the aisles trying to find a place to sit, and nobody is 
offering him a place. And so finally he walks up to the front and just sits down at the ground, waiting to, to hear what's going to happen next. And then the music stops, and there's this pregnant pause, like, oh, okay, what do we do now? But things get more tense when this older senior saint in the church, everyone knows him, he's been an elder, a pastor, a leader, he gets up out of his chair and with his cane starts walking up the aisle towards this young man. And it's getting more and more tense. Like, what is going to happen? Is he going to confront this man for coming in with bare feet, for having long hair, a t-shirt, not showing proper respect? But as he makes his way up there, just, you know, kind of, he's moving slowly. His age is taking his toll and he puts his cane down and kind of works his way down here. Three-piece suit and all. He sits down next to the young man as to say, welcome. Welcome. And come and hear what the Spirit of Christ wants to say to you. And the senior pastor who's been sitting on the stage watching this whole thing recognizes the Spirit of Christ in this beautiful senior saint. He says, what I've prepared today, you will probably forget. But what you've seen today, you will probably never forget. You see, I would rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Today, as we're looking at what Jesus does at a similar service, a synagogue Sabbath service, we're going to see that Jesus... His actions speak about what God is doing. If you have your Bibles or you might want to open them up to Luke chapter 13 as we continue in our series of the Gospel of Luke. And we'll see that Jesus is trying to illustrate what God has done and what He has come to do. So if you want to read along with me, this is Luke chapter 13. And we're going to pick it up at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you were set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her. And immediately she straightened up and praised God, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days and not the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? 
And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and see what Jesus wants to show us in his word. Lord Jesus, indeed, it was uh, in a worship service much like this that you were working. And so I pray, Lord, that you will be at work through your Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts to see what you have to say to us today and the freedom that you want to give us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to respond, to repent, to look up, to take you at your word, Lord. And again, as I have prayed, I pray that you will set someone free today. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus is bringing the message of the kingdom of God, proclaiming the good news that sinful men and women might have right relationship with a holy God. And here is really today's focus on what Jesus is doing. Jesus has come to set us free from the law of sin and death. Jesus has come to set us free from the law and sin and death. And there's some parts of this passage that are really obvious about that. But there are others that are not so obvious. And yet God wants to see that anyway. So we're going to use our powers of observation, just kind of some inductive Bible study. And if you've been with us, you've been with us through this series in Luke, the first question I want to ask is, Jesus, what are you doing in this synagogue? Why are you here? Because in the other episodes earlier in this gospel, it hasn't gone so well. Yeah, it's, it's where he starts out, kind of proclaims what he's doing. In his own hometown synagogue, he starts reading from Isaiah 62, 1 and 2. And this is from the fourth chapter, verses 18 and 19. And he says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery for the sight of the blind, and to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I don't know about you, but those are beautiful words. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God is reaching out with His favor towards sinful mankind. It's why he came. And even the people that are initially there are saying, oh, these are, these are very gracious words. But eventually, by the end of this episode, in Jesus' home synagogue, they're taking, saying, wait a minute, aren't you, aren't you Joseph's boy? Aren't you Mary's son? And they don't like what he has to say. And they end up trying to throw him off the hill at the end of town. We get to chapter 6. And Jesus is in a synagogue again on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders, they are just looking for a reason to find fault with Jesus. And there's this man who has a shriveled hand. And Jesus asks, tell me, is it lawful to take life or destroy life or to Repair life on the Sabbath. And you know what the response was? 
cricket, cricket, cricket. Because they were all hardened. They didn't care. They just wanted to find fault with Jesus. And so he heals them. And so they're looking for a way to destroy him at the end of that. Again, from a very pragmatic standpoint, Jesus, what are you doing in the synagogue? This hasn't gone so well. You need to stick to the open air stuff. That's where you're, that's where you're successful. At least that's what our society would say. Church growth leaders would say, perhaps. What's most effective? But Jesus has a purpose for being here in the synagogue. And his purposes might be hidden. But his purposes are redemptive. And so let's look into this. Again, in this, this particular passage, as was earlier, it was the Sabbath. It was a day where people were supposed to cease work because of God's command. And there were certain things you could do, and there are certain things you could not do, if you will. But what is the purpose of the Sabbath? That's what Jesus is going to start drilling down to. And what is God demonstrating in what happens here in this particular episode and what God is doing? So we start out with this crippled woman, this woman who is bent over. She somehow has been afflicted by some sort of spirit of infirmity. I'm, we're not really sure how that manifested itself, except that she was bent over. She could not straighten up. 18 long years, the scripture says. And for most in the, in the synagogue, she probably walked in, she's probably a pitiful sight. Maybe some felt sorry for her. Others felt like, well, there must be some hidden sin in that woman's life. And she's getting what she deserves, if you will. She's probably a bit of a, a fringe participant in that synagogue society. But Jesus is there. He's teaching. And you know what's interesting? He sees her. And he calls her up. He says, come on up here. She's not the one coming to him. She's not asking him for anything. In fact, she probably feels a little bit of like, I, look, I know who I am in this, in this, you know, this community. And I, I don't want to have the spotlight on me. I don't want to be embarrassed, if you will. I, I don't want to feel the shame that I already feel. Jesus seeks her out. And frankly, folks, I think this is just an indication of the nature of God and what he's doing in sending Jesus. He's the one who makes the first move in sending his son. He's the one who is looking to reconcile us, the offenders, to himself, a holy God. He is the one who's reaching out. It's just an illustration of what God is doing in Jesus. And so he speaks his authoritative word over her. Verse 12, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. So that's, that's got a lot of chutzpah to do that, first of all, right? He must think he has some spiritual authority to be able to say that. But number two, he puts his hand on her, her healing hand. And let me tell you, folks, that was probably pretty controversial. Because in that society, a Jewish man did not touch 
a woman who was not his family in the public, most likely. Part of it was a boundaries issue, what's appropriate. Part of it was chauvinism. Because, you know, men didn't want to be too close to women. They thought themselves superior and didn't want to be, you know, touching a woman. But what happened was Jesus was communicating divine care and compassion and love and value. And immediately, this woman who's been down for 18 years straightens up. Right there in the synagogue, right there in the church, right there in the assembly, everyone sees it. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone came and we prayed for that person and they were healed right now, I'd be excited. That would be exciting. Look what God is doing. Isn't that awesome? And by the way, I believe God has not stopped healing. Folks, I'm just going to refer to this real quickly. Rochester had, his, had its own crooked lady. And in, in 2011, a gal named Emma uh, McKinley was healed from being bent over sideways for 17 years on the day before Christmas Eve. And she says it was Jesus who called her to stand up. It's an amazing story. That's not my main point, but I want to just tell you that God is still at work. But as I said, this is exciting. God is doing something, right? But it wasn't exciting for everybody. In fact, it was a reason for some to get angry. In verse 14, the synagogue leader is indignant. He saw Jesus healing on the Sabbath as a violation of God's word. You violated God's word. And so he quotes loosely some of the opening words of the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Where he says, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but I do question how is it that it's determined that healing somebody is more work than reading the Torah, reading the Scriptures, praying, what have you? I'm kind of going, okay, how is that more work? Because, you know, you're thinking, no one's lifting heavy, heavy things. It's just <laughs> it's pronouncing healing and, and praying. That's what Jesus did. That's as far as the work went. But maybe it's because they're thinking, well, spiritual energy went out, and therefore it's work. I'm not sure. But it's God's power that's at work here. And that's what this leader is missing. Secondly, the synagogue leader is missing the purpose of the Sabbath. And even more so, the purpose of what God is doing right in front of his eyes. Okay, real quick question. Ten Commandments are listed in two places in the Scripture. Anyone know offhand what, where they're found? Go ahead. You want a kid. Somebody tell me. Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy what? I want a chapter, folks. Come on now. Okay, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Okay, we're not doing, you know... We're not trying to flex our spiritual muscles here. Oh, I knew where the. But here's my point. It happens twice in the Old Testament. The first time in Exodus 20, and it goes out to the people who have just come out of Egypt, out of slavery, right? 
So they get the first Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is given to them. The second time in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, by the way, means second law, it's given to their kids because that generation died out and their kids were the ones who received it in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. There's a difference because there's a difference in emphasis. And I'm going someplace with this, trust me. This is, let me just read to you what, what it says about in uh, the fourth commandment in uh, Exodus here. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. The emphasis on this reading of, of the fourth commandment is creation. God made the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh. Therefore, rest on the seventh to honor the Lord. And that rest not only included you, but your kids, your servants, and your critters. Everything. Everything stopped laboring that day. And by the way, that's actually a pretty good rhythm to kind of practice. If you just you have some day during the week that you have some sense of Sabbath or rest, it will actually benefit you as you rest and also uh, honor the Lord. But this, at this time, by Jesus' time, it had denigrated. It had degraded into a, a thing of just keeping the rules. In fact, there were rules upon rules in order to keep the Sabbath. What does it mean to, to stop working here? Well, you can't heal. We don't know why you can't heal, but you can't heal. And by the way, if you're a woman, you couldn't look in the mirror because you might be tempted to pull out a gray hair out of your head. There was a Sabbath day travel. How did they determine that? I don't know. But there were rules in order that you could demonstrate you were a good Sabbath keeper. He says, I'm keeping the Sabbath. I'm a good, holy Jew. In essence, it was a form of self-salvation. Because I'm going to save myself by keeping God's law. That's what's going on here. Let's get back to the the Deuteronomy version of the fourth commandment. Same command, different emphasis. Listen to this. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and you should do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male, nor female servants, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your animals, and not any foreigner residing in your towns so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Now listen to this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt 
and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Different emphasis, right? Observe the Sabbath because God has set you free from slavery. Observe the Sabbath because God has set you free from slavery. You were slaves there in Egypt, and there was no Sabbath rest, right? Your, sla- your, your slave master said, get to work, make bricks. That's what you were stuck. You were just stuck 24-7 in slavery. And by the way, unfortunately, some of us are still in that slavery. But God came to set us free. That is the purpose of the Sabbath, to give freedom to rest. Freedom to rest. This foreshadows the greater freedom that God is going to bring in Christ. This is what's going on here. This is what Jesus is pointing to. So here's where Jesus answers them. And Luke says, the Lord answered him. Just real quickly. He doesn't say Jesus. It is Jesus. But he says, the Lord. He's the one who gave this law. And so he's going to explain it, if you will. You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out to water? So let me get this straight. You and your beast of burden, who is not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, because God's commanded it, on that day you're all right about coming into the, the barn, untying it, leading it out to the water and setting it free, if you will, in order that that creature may live. You're okay with that. So you seem to understand the freedom principle of the Sabbath for your critters. How much more for this woman? You hypocrites. You're missing it. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? She's made in God's image. She is a descendant of Abraham and his covenants. And she's in bondage to a spiritual enemy. What better day for her to be set free? That's what the Sabbath is intended for. And here's where we're seeing the sermon more than hearing it either. Uh, more than seeing. We're, hear, we're seeing the sermon more than hearing it. Jesus has healed this woman who's been afflicted by Satan and has set her free. And it's really pointing towards what Jesus is going to do to set us all free. Our own bondage to sin our rebellion against God, and the death that ensues. Because he's come to live the life that we could not live before a holy God. He's going to pay the penalty upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sin against a holy God that we can't pay. He's going to rise from the dead to conquer a foe that we cannot conquer. And those who put their faith in him will have freedom 
in him. The Apostle Paul sums it up in his opening words of the chapter, eighth chapter of Romans, verses one and two. Therefore, there is no now condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And by the way, that's why the author of Hebrews in chapter four talks about Jesus being our Sabbath rest. Because it's dependent upon what He has done and not dependent upon what we can do. We can be set free. We can rest in Him. Now perhaps you're here today and you're just feeling like I've been striving and striving to please God and I'm hitting a brick wall. And you are because you can't fully do it in your own strength. It really is what Christ has come to do to set you free. Perhaps you feel ashamed. You feel like I've gone too far. And Jesus is saying, no, I can set you free today. See, the gospel, the good news, is not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us. As we receive his gift of what Jesus has done. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain and demonstrate in setting this woman free from the infirmity of being bent over what Jesus would do in going to the cross and rising from the, the grave. But there's one other thing I want you to see, and I, I call this kind of the grace undercard in this story. Listen to the last words of this chapter, of this, of this, uh, this episode, verse 17. And when he had said this, all of his opponents were humiliated. But people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Now, a natural reading of this, if we just kind of take it at its face value and don't think a whole lot about it, is Jesus is just giving these bad guys their comeuppances. He's publicly humiliating them. He's putting them in their place. You know, they had wielded God's, uh, God's word in a way that was punishing and controlling of others. And they were humiliated. But actually, that's the best place that these people could be. And here's where I'm going with this. They were humiliated by Jesus' actions. They were humiliated for their hypocritical actions. And they were humbled by Jesus' greater understanding of the Scripture and how it was to be lived out. But listen to this. When you are being humbled and shown that your error or shown you're wrong, you're in a place to repent and respond rightly. And here's the second point, is that Jesus humbles to set us free. Jesus humbles to set us free. No one likes being humbled. No one enjoys it at the time. But it's a place to be set free and respond to the truth. The synagogue rulers and his cronies were in bondage to self-salvation. 
They were in bondage to their own self-righteousness by keeping the law, and Jesus shows them their error. And it's there so they can be set free. And Luke leaves this open-ended. He doesn't say what happens to them afterward. But if they can come to terms with their misunderstanding, where they were wrong, they're in a place to respond and respond to the truth of who Jesus is. How many people in life and through history, and maybe some of us even here in this room, were wrong about who Jesus was? Lou Wallace, a Civil War general, sought to prove Jesus was wrong, a farce, and pursued it and found himself putting his faith in Jesus and ended up writing the novel Ben-Hur, in which the two movies were made, actually three movies were made. A man named Lee Strobel, a man who was a Harvard graduate in law, journalism as well, came to try and disprove Jesus. And yet as he followed him, he discovered that he was really the Messiah who he said he was. And he ended up repenting, following Jesus, seeing the difference that it had made in his own family, in his own life, and wrote the book A Case for Christ. Saul of Tarsus persecuted the church because he thought Jesus was a false Messiah and Jesus intercepts him on the way to Damascus, turns him around and makes him Paul, the Apostle Paul, really the most effective missionary during the uh, first century. And even his own brothers did not believe in him. And he turned around two of them, James and Jude or Judah, and they became effective in ministering to the church in the first century. You see, sometimes you have to be humbled and humiliated and learn that you're wrong about Jesus in order that you might turn around and follow him rightly. And it is humbling. But instead of self-righteousness or self-sufficiency, you have to admit your need or your spiritual poverty. And yet Jesus says this, In the Sermon on the Mount, first words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The starting point is your own poverty. There's a beautiful statement. comes three times in the Scriptures. The first in Proverbs 3. And then it's repeated by Jesus' own brother, James, and then the Apostle Peter in his letter. It says this, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. If you're going to be proud and you're going to be self-driven, self-sufficient, then God will oppose you. He'll let you do what you want to do, but He'll oppose you. But He gives grace to the humble. Those who recognize their need acknowledge that they need a Savior. They need someone to do something in them, and it's Jesus. Maybe God is humbling some of us to show us our need and to put us in a place to respond rightly in order that we might be set free. This message is for two people here today. For those who feel stuck in a slump, in bondage, afflicted like the woman in this story, the message for you is that he sees you. He knows. He knows even your failure. But He wants to reach out to you and set you free. 
free in the life He gives. And for some of us, we might discover that we've been living a life of self-sufficiency, a self-contained person, and maybe you're discovering some of the cracks in the armor. Maybe God is humbling you and showing you you don't have your act together as much as you thought. And maybe you feel like you're being humbled. But I want to tell you, that's not there to afflict you. It's there to give you life. Because God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And will you humbly turn towards Him? Say, I was wrong. And let Him set you free from yourself. Let me pray, and then I'll ask the worship team to come and close us. Lord Jesus, You have an amazing way of getting to the heart of the matter. And today you're looking into our hearts. And so for that one who is, who feels ashamed, who feels stuck, who feels like I'm in a slump and I can't get out, would you speak your presence, your hope, your salvation to him or to her today? Because what you have done, (laughs) what you've done in coming to live this life, to pay our penalty, to conquer death, and so much more, Lord Jesus, would you help them to respond in faith, to look up to you, to reach out, and help them to see that you've been there all along, waiting for them to respond in faith. And for that person in here who has been self-sufficient, self-serving, self-saving, if you will, would you give them the grace to see their error, to see that there is no other Savior except you, Lord Jesus. Grant them the grace to be released from their own bondage and respond to you and say, Lord, I need you in humility that they might be set free as well. And for those of us, Lord, who follow you daily, would you give us grace to walk in humility, to know we need you every hour of every day, to continue to live your life in us and through us, through your Holy Spirit. We're grateful for this word today. May it continue to change and transform us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand as we respond in worship?